Stanford University. Um, what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, China, uh, which is a, a particular passion that I have. Um, I've uh, just come back from China. I spent 10 days. Uh, I actually came back this morning, uh, this time around, and I, I go there very regularly. Um, I actually worked and lived in Hong Kong for some years, uh, running our global chemicals business before uh, I took this role of uh, running BP Solar. And uh, in that business, I learned a great deal about the power of China. I had five manufacturing plants in China, uh, another five in the rest of Asia, three in the United States, and two in Europe. And I got to see how global competition plays out uh, when significant advantages um, that uh, certain markets have or in technology or in resources start to shift. Um, the rise of China is uh, a very powerful force that I think we uh, all must uh, carefully uh, understand. And with it comes great opportunity. And I've been very fortunate to have had the chance to sample that. Uh, in real time and also uh, in, a, in a sense uh, coming up now as we develop our Chinese business. We've been in China for, for seven years uh, as a solar company and uh, we've sold products there for many, many more years. But um, China as a solar market is beginning to emerge as a very, very powerful force. So let me just start with a, a few uh, thoughts to share with you. Uh, I want to have a conversation. Um, so I'll present some things, but then, you know, we might... Uh, stop and just uh, uh, have a dialogue with each other. Um, yeah, let's be very clear. China is very focused on the green and uh, clean technology for the future. Um, and, and we'll see some examples of where it has already become a leader uh, and uh, it will become increasingly uh, a leader in green technology. So uh, absolute commitment from the very, very top um, uh, of uh, the Chinese government and um, a lot of commitment from industry to pursue this path. So, uh, you know, I, I can run through a lot of statistics for you. Um, I, I'm just going to sample a few. Um, yeah, China's done some extraordinary things. Uh, really, uh, the economy's been transformed. Um, but, you know, a lot of uh, very interesting um, growth that's been achieved. Uh, producing today half of the world's cement, uh, a third of the world's aluminium and steel. Um, and in that time frame where it has uh, grown as an economy, uh, it's doubled its energy consumption. So um, it's consuming huge amounts of coal, largest in the world, uh, and the second largest consumer of uh, crude oil. And of course, uh, with the wealth has come a huge infusion of, of capital uh, and uh, foreign exchange surplus that is also powerful for uh, investment and future investment. So uh, of course, China today, very formidable. Um, this is the growth trajectory till 2004 uh, in RMB, and you can see it's been an extraordinary ride. Um, so I thought, well, we you know we should really look forward a little bit and plot what happens in the next 20 years, uh, and there's the chart. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it, it, really quite extraordinary. Uh, in this time frame, uh, we'll see a quadrupling uh, by 2020 uh, of uh, GDP. Uh, consumption of energy per unit of GDP will be reduced by 20%, and the Chinese government has already announced a 40 to 45% reduction um, in the 2020 time frame. So again, every time uh, China sets a target, it surpasses it very quickly, and then it puts the bar even higher. So, uh, so there's, there's the challenge. Now, 
Uh, in that time frame, uh, 10 gigawatts of solar installed. That is the commitment uh, of the Chinese government. Uh, right now, there are only a few hundred megawatts. Uh, and uh, the whole market, the world market for solar is about 6 gigawatts. So you can see the ambition is uh, to become absolutely a world leader in solar. Uh, but of course, China is not the only com uh, country that is really pursuing uh, rapid expansion in solar. Uh, many others too. India in particular uh, has a similar ambition for solar energy. And of course, the United States and Europe uh, continue to um, outline a very bold ambition for solar energy deployment. Uh, of course, solar is very suited to China uh, because it is a distributed form of energy. Uh, it is uh, capable of going into uh, all different ranges of irradiation uh, zones from, from the deserts of western China to uh, the northern cold climate. So uh, very, very uh, impactful for, for Chinese economy and I think seen as also an opportunity to connect uh, off-grid consumers uh, to electricity because there's still a lot of electrification that needs to go on. So um, today, uh, it's, uh, the Chinese economy is really a, a coal-based economy, 70% um, of the energy needs and of course oil as well. Lots and lots of challenges associated with that, pollution, um, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, uh, and a lot of environmental challenges. Uh, so you know, the government's focus is very, very clear. Um, yeah, we need to address that. Um, and that's done through a whole range of different policy instruments from uh, central government initiatives to local, provincial, and even city level uh, range of, of different uh, policy uh, programs that are designed to uh, take us down this path. The Golden Sun program is particularly interesting for, for us as solar because it is, a, uh, it is the, the, the vision of, of 10 gigawatts uh, that we saw earlier. And it's being rolled out right now, being uh, lobbied for and being formulated in terms of um, tariffs, and it's really beginning to kick off uh, this year, uh, and we're, as BP, uh, involved in a number of projects. Some of the world's largest projects, actually, uh, will be built uh, in China. Uh, these are installations as opposed to manufacturing sites, and I'll come back to that in a moment. So the size and the scale of the green economy uh, in China, solar and all other uh, uh, green forms could be very significant, 15% of the forecast GDP by 2013. And of course, China has some terrific advantages. Uh, labor is still uh, uh, not just cheap, but also very intelligent. Uh, so one of the things I learned when I first went to China was actually the number of engineers uh, and the number of scientists working in jobs that in any other country would be uh, deployed with um, uh, perhaps uh, high school graduates. Uh, so, uh, the, uh, one of our partners, uh, when we went to visit their, uh, their uh, headquarters, uh, explained to us that, uh, that in the control room, which we went to see, um, there were, uh, I think it was, 20 PhDs sitting at the board uh, controlling a plant. And when you put 20 PhDs in front of a screen uh, optimizing a factory, uh, you can see the difference. Uh, I experienced that myself uh, in our own factory in China. Uh, where we uh, use some of the brightest people to um, uh, optimize and, and work day to day to improve the performance of our factories. So a really significant advantage. It's not just about low cost labor. And I think a lot of people miss that point when they think about China. And of course, uh, I think you all know 600,000 engineers um, every year. 
coming out of, uh, of, of Chinese universities. Very significant infrastructure advantage. So we just visited a, a factory, uh, one of the world's largest monocrystalline uh, pulling uh, manufacturers, and they also wafer. Uh, they're about 100 megawatts today just outside of Shanghai. Um, their new factory, which is uh, going to be a little further out, about an hour and a half out of, of, of Shanghai. Uh, so they were sizing it for about 300 megawatts. So they're going to triple the size. And when they went to the local government and started discussing land and so on, the local government said, well, you know, we'll give you an even bigger plot of land, and actually we'll give it to you for free. Uh, we'll also give you um, some, uh, effectively, a, we'll build the site for you. Uh, we'll provide roads and infrastructure for you. Um, you know, would that help you, you know, do something different with this site? And the answer was, well, actually, with the same amount of money, they could build a 400 megawatt site. So they've decided to increase their uh, production basis from three to 400 megawatts. When you have that kind of support um, from local and, and uh, uh, provincial governments to build infrastructure, uh, very formidable, and it allows you to scale up. And with scale comes reduced costs and economies of scale. Uh, and that's where I think there's some very exciting opportunities um, for the future. Um, you know, some people say, say, well, is this all just talk? Um, and, and will actually the market materialize? Well, let's take a look at what happened in wind. So, you know, in a very short period of time, and you can see it at the bottom here, uh, really hardly any wind production in China. In 2009, 13 gigawatts installed. Uh, that's an extraordinary uh, volume, bigger than uh, the United States installed in wind in 2009. Uh, in fact, I think in 2008, the US did something like uh, five gigawatts. So again, China really uh, scaled up the wind industry very rapidly. And uh, one of the biggest advantages that China has in wind is a very well-developed uh, superhighway, if you like, of grid uh, connection. So uh, a lot of where the wind is is in western China and northern China. Uh, the demand center is in the east. And the government invested heavily in uh, very significant grid uh, capacity, oversized, uh, for the existing uh, electricity production from the West. Uh, and so therefore, uh, when wind comes along and solar and other renewables, or, or even other uh, energy sources, uh, there's the infrastructure already in place. So uh, very substantial. Now, of course, um, at the beginning of the journey on wind, uh, there were really no local manufacturers. Uh, all of the equipment was imported from overseas, from companies like GE and Vestas and others. Uh, well. Uh, China took the challenge on of developing its own wind manufacturing base uh, and very quickly built uh, what would be world-scale wind manufacturing companies today. Uh, and those companies are now the ones that are installing and winning the, the business here uh, to continue to grow uh, wind capacity in China. So uh, solar is, uh, is a great opportunity. Uh, it's sort of the reverse of wind. China started by being a manufacturer and exporting to the rest of the world. It, it is the world's largest uh, producer of solar equipment, and uh, most of it goes overseas. Uh, one of the interesting dynamics we will consider is whether we will have a situation where there may be a war on panel. Um, so if you own all of the manufacturing capacity and you have very strong domestic demand, how do you trade off the world's needs versus your own needs? Uh, now, a lot of these companies are private companies. 
they will go wherever the margin is, uh, us included. And so uh, there will be some interesting dynamics that will emerge. Because right now, everybody thinks of the market as long. And therefore, you know, anybody who wants a solar system can buy it and get it at a reasonable cost. Well, memories are short. Uh, only two years ago, uh, we were very short. In fact, right now, in the first quarter of 2010, we're sold out. Uh, the industry's sold out. And we're all scrambling around to find solar panels. So it's very interesting how uh, immature the solar supply chain really is right now and how much it has to go to get to the place where oil and gas and other energy products have got to uh, in being abundantly available with a deep supply chain and a lot of flexibility. So again, a lot of stresses and strains will come. But of course, the government has really helped its local domestic manufacturing industry with all of the um, support structures that I described earlier to help make sure that uh, Chinese companies are providing the world uh, solar energy. So uh, domestic market, we talked about the Golden Sun program. So here's where we're at. Um, it's a, a very significant uh, scheme. Uh, it will uh, be supported by central and provincial government with top-ups. Uh, and various other incentives that, that will be delivered. Um, the central government has obviously uh, built the, the framework, and we're beginning to start starting to see now um, some of the tariff proposals coming through. And um, in uh, due course, I think, um, probably in the next few months, uh, all of it will be finalized, and then we'll start to see people actually committing uh, you know, panels to the ground and beginning to install systems. So very, very significant program. Um, I actually spent some time in Jiangsu province uh, um, this week. And uh, it's extraordinary. I mean, I visited two sites. Um, so let me give you a sense. You know, uh, Our biggest factory in the world is BP Solar. It's 180 megawatts. It's in Xi'an, which is Shangxi province in China. Um, we visited a factory that was 500 megawatts. Um, it will be starting production. Uh, in July, and um, we visited a second site for the same company, which is also 500 megawatts, and that's starting up uh, also in uh, June, July of this year. So, you know, the ability to move rapidly to scale, and how and how powerful that is, because the unit costs come down very substantially when you get to a gigawatt scale, um, is uh, really quite stunning. So, um, a lot of focus on this, and I think uh, you'll see it uh, come through in a very substantial growth. Uh, BP in China, a little bit about uh, us. We, we're the largest foreign investor in China. Uh, we've invested $5 billion uh, so far in gas, in fuels, petrochemicals, where I used to work, and lubricants. We have a lot of investment in R&D, and uh, clean energy R&D centers. Um, and in fact, uh, I would say that's yet more exciting um, for the future of China, because R&D uh, is uh, a real focus. Uh, some of the best and brightest uh, who've learned their trade overseas are some that are developing new innovations in China are, are coming through now. And it, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be wonderful for the industry to have that pool of resources available. Uh, I mentioned our factory, our, our joint venture, uh, with a, actually an electrical transformer company, one of the largest in the world. Um, they're our partner uh, in Xi'an. And uh, we're the second largest company in uh, the, the province, 
uh, as an exporter and manufacturer. So um, you'll see that actually, you know, fundamentally here, you know, we, we will see a huge influx of capital um, into the Chinese renewables sector. Um, the green economy will emerge uh, in China, and it will um, really deliver some uh, very significant uh, production of electricity, which will be uh, get to the levels of 15 percent of the total energy mix in China uh, in a, a period of 20 to 30 years. So um, some interesting questions. So with all of this scale and, and capability, how does this, uh, what does this really mean for the United States and for uh, the rest of the world? Uh, will China be uh, the world's largest solar market um, in due course? Um, today, the largest solar market is Germany. Um, been Germany for some time. Uh, Germany has a very interesting, uh, consistent set of policy frameworks. Was the first to introduce the feed-in tariff regime. And uh, as I was explaining to a, a group of students earlier, um, it's very interesting because that stimulus of a direct subsidy that really bridges the gap between the cost of solar electricity and other forms uh, is the fastest way to get growth to happen and many, many economies around the world have deployed this system. Uh, here in the United States, we have the investment tax credit. Uh, obviously, you need tax, uh, you need tax capacity, and you need to uh, wait some time before you get the benefit of uh, deploying solar energy, and it's complicated. Uh, well, you know that Germany started with a tax-based policy uh, and saw that it did not kick off demand uh, and decided to move to the feed-in tariff, and suddenly demand did uh, rapidly uh, come. So uh, my view, and, and we've expressed it uh, to Secretary Chu, I hope you express it to him when he comes uh, next week, uh, you know, the United States, if it's really going to grow to be a material solar economy, requires a direct stimulus such as a feed-in tariff system, uh, and we believe that without that it will be very difficult uh, to see the U.S. be much, much larger than China is both in absolute sense, but also in the proportion of energy consumption from solar energy. So I, I'm going to stop there. Um, I think it's, uh, as I said earlier, I'd like to have a discussion with you. Um, so I've just hopefully prompted some thoughts and ideas uh, in your heads, and, and maybe now we can uh, open it up for some discussion. Here. What do you see with the uh, uh, lack of panels down the immediate production line quite as affecting in the years to come? How do you see the ramp up to supply the tremendous demand that could happen? Right. Uh, so, so the issue, the, the sort of statement I made earlier about the immaturity of the supply chain. So we have to remember that you know, to make a panel, we start a long way away with some quartzite that is mined, um, which has to be essentially uh, heated up and, and uh, its purity uh, improved substantially to get it to about 99.79% uh, purity as pure polysilicon. That process requires, it's a chemical uh, process, uh, requires very significant investment and has uh, significant lead times to ramp up a factory 
in order to produce uh, quantities that can be used at the right purity and the right cost. The um, interesting noise in the background. <laughs> the the um, uh, that's really the the starting point, because then we take the the polysilicon which is produced, melt it again, um, basically make uh, bricks out of it or or uh, large cylinders, and then we slice those into wafers, and then we take the wafers and we have to treat them, uh, make them into an electrical uh, uh, instruments and then we have to string them up, uh, put some glass on, bo on both sides and, and a back sheet and then put a panel on before we have a product that we can use um, that produces electricity. So you know, the issues of the supply chain are really to do with that whole process from start to finish. So about uh, four years ago, uh, maybe five years ago let's say, um, polysilicon was reasonably abundant and it was fairly priced. So we had prices of about $30 to $40 a kilo uh, for high quality polysilicon. Two years ago, the price of polysilicon uh, was $400 a kilo. And so factor of 10 higher. Why? Because essentially the industry underestimated demand for solar and so didn't build capacity sufficiently to be able to supply that demand. And so we had shortages and the price went up. Now, today, the price is back down to between $50 and $60 a kilo. Um, so again, you know, can you imagine that kind of volatility and the impact that has on pricing of solar energy, uh, but also availability of product and our ability to ramp up uh, the supply chain in the business? So uh, I would say we're still learning how to create a stable, um, economically uh, efficient supply chain uh, and I think uh, we'll still see stresses and strains um, and shortages uh, in this market uh, as uh, the lead times are compressed that will help so it used to take about five years to ramp up a polysilicon plant which is extraordinary think about it you know there's no other very few other industries that take that long to really get a factory to maximum capacity uh, today it would take three years perhaps two years in, in the leading uh, uh, suppliers that we see. Um, so yeah, that will help. Um, but you know, when you have, uh, I think it was 87% growth in solar in 2008, uh, stayed flat in 2009, maybe went up a little bit, and 2010 looks like it might take another big leap. You know, that was a very useful thing for us because we could take a breath you know, to catch up before the next uh, cycle comes. And, and I have to say, uh, the cycle that, that I see in 2010 and 11 is uh, a very daunting. It's a very substantial growth. So, back to back. Uh, do you see the Golden Sun program being something stable over time, or do you think it's going to be? Is there some possibility that it could, it could wind up like a bonanza, like you saw in Spain earlier? Great question. I, I think that um, uh, Spain is really a unique, a unique situation. Um, the, the German system has been the most effective. I mean, essentially, we have about 8 to 10% degradation every year in the tariff. Um, the industry knows about it. It expects it. Um, what happened this year is quite interesting because the German government decided, actually, because costs have come down so much faster than they expected, they decided to do a, a, a sort of mid-year correction and on top just to make sure that uh, they have the balance right between you know, 
funding that gap and overfunding it. Um, so, so I think that everyone's learned from that. Um, the Italian government has learned from that in their development of their feed-in tariff scheme, and we're seeing them also reduce the tariff um, progressively over time. And I think the Golden Trans program will be um, adjusted in, in, after a period of time. Because I think you need, you need to sort of keep it stable for uh, a certain period, let's call it a couple of years, to see the demand take off. It's, it's literally like lighting a fire. If, if you don't see it start, uh, it means your, your, your incentive mechanism is not effective. And so I, I suspect it, it will have some corrections. But the key is that the, you create a stable uh, sort of expectation around that so that the industry can plan appropriately and we don't have these stresses and strains. Uh, yeah, uh, the chairman's prerogative here to, to uh, ask the question. So I've heard the claim made that uh, while the prices uh, are likely to continue to come down on the, on the cells themselves, there hasn't been similar progress in the balance of systems. So the inverters, the, all the steel, the, the, you know, the stuff you hang, aluminum you hang it on, and all that kind of stuff. Is, is, what's your view of that? Is that right or wrong, and what can we expect in that? I think that's correct. Uh, so. So I think it's really to do with scale. So if you think about uh, where solar has been deployed, it's been mostly in the residential market. So you know, the balance of systems component is small uh, or, or, or not as, as challenging in terms of, of scale. Um, but increasingly now, we're doing utility scale projects. And these, uh, so I'll tell you our own experience. So we, we used to do, you know, a big project for us was about a megawatt. You know, a solar farm, about a megawatt would be a, a big challenge for us. Um, so last year we did a 10 megawatt uh, farm. This year we're doing in Long Island, um, uh, actually on a DOE facility in, in Brookhaven, um, we're doing 37 megawatts. And um, I'll say this here privately to you, uh, but it is not public. Um, we've just won a contract for a 600 megawatt project here in the United States. Uh, now a 600 megawatt project, so let me put it this way. Um, if you're buying a megawatt's worth of inverters, um, you'll get a good price. Uh, if you buy 600 megawatts of inverters, I think you'll get an even better price. So, you know, th th that's some of that. Uh, it's really just scale related. Because, you know, if you're an inverter supplier, you you're going to say, well, you know, solar's great, but it's, it's still relatively small. I'm selling more inverters to other segments than I am here. Um, but I think increasingly we'll see that. Uh, and secondly, you know, frankly, there have been only a handful of suppliers in some of these components. Uh, and that's changing very rapidly, too becoming more of a, an industry. Uh, and then I would say uh, just generally how we plan projects and how we execute them is going to fundamentally change. Uh, so I, I think there's plenty of uh, upside in the non-module cost structure. But I think there's also some, some pretty interesting upside in the module too. The um, 20, 10 gigawatts by 2020 just doesn't sound very much, but they're going to be a gigawatt a week over there for the electricity capacity. Why, why is it so low? Is it, is it the, uh, you don't expect the LCOE to go down below competitive technologies, or is it capacity limited, or what? So uh, I'll give you this sort of uh, little data point. Um, yeah, the question was about the scale, the, the, the 10 gigawatts. Is it, is it really that, that significant, and why isn't it a lot more compared to other forms of energy that are being added at those sorts of, of, of factors in a, in, in a year? or? couple of years. Um, so, so you start with the cost, of course, because, and it's the LCOE, as you said. Um, now, the cost structure is changing very dramatically. Um, so 
you know, I would say 15 to 20 cents a kilowatt hour was sort of typical of what we could achieve um, with subsidy included. Um, so, so that was, you know, that's going to be double, if not 3x, what you could get from a coal or a gas-fired uh, power plant. Um, so today, for our 600 megawatt project, the PPA is 7 cents a kilowatt hour. So this is a very substantial reduction. That's a halving at 600 megawatts. Now, you know, how many 600 megawatt projects are we going to do as an industry? Uh, right now, we just we haven't done any. Uh, the largest we've ever done is probably about 50 right now. Um, so, so you, you know, it's, a, it's an issue of catch-up uh, to the right kind of unit scale per project, which drives down costs even further. And as soon as you get that, then uh, I suspect we'll be able to exceed these sorts of levels. But it will require huge tracts of land. I mean, this is the other issue. Is there are many other challenges for developing large solar facilities. Uh, and of course, we need to creep up the efficiencies so that we can get more out of any given piece of land. Because uh, a 15% or so efficiency, or maybe 18 for monocrystalline, um, it, you know, you're still consuming huge amounts of land to, to do it. Sorry. Um, I've heard that uh, China possesses most of rare metals, somewhere between 90 and 97%. Um, I was just wondering if you could comment on how they're leveraging that against kind of the global market, and what you think, um, how you think the rest of the industries in the world will adapt and react to China's play on that resource. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think the depth of resource in, you know, on this planet is still um, you know, uh, misunderstood or, un or not understood. Uh, yes, China has some significant reserves of various um, uh, minerals and, and metals, uh, and coal, frankly, for that matter. Um, but I see them as um, really focusing on making sure that uh, they power up their own demand first um, before they start uh, you know, exporting incremental capacity to the world. Uh, and that, that makes sense to me, because you know, they have a, a greater need, uh, frankly, than, than, than the, other, uh, the rest of the world, just given the scale and size of their economy. Um, I also think that um, in our business, um, the, the, the more we can really uh, use standard materials or, or readily available materials, commodity materials, um, to, to do our work, the better. And I think you'll see actually China push very hard in this direction uh, because actually uh, there are some stresses and strains in getting those minerals developed. Uh, and I think that uh, probably the best solution for the world and for China is to move away from those precious metals, uh, and I think that's a, a, a trend that is uh, well established and will continue. Uh, my understanding is that between 95 and 98 percent of China's PV production is currently being exported, mm -hmm. and there was an interview I ran uh, with the factory manager about this. His comment was that as long as the foreign price is higher than the Chinese price, we'll continue to export them. Do you think that this is going to be a problem in the long run, or will the Chinese government make up the subsidy gap so that Chinese subsidies are equal to European and American subsidies? I think there's a number of factors. I would say that the non-Chinese subsidies structures that exist will go down. Um, we've seen, as I said, Germany correct 16% uh, mid-year. Uh, so by the end of this year, it will be more like 25% uh, reduction, which is very substantial uh, in a year. 
um, in, a year, in a previous year when we had a 50% reduction in the panel size, mostly driven by the silicon reduction that we talked about earlier. So, so I would say that's, that's the first factor, is the gap will shrink. Um, I think the subsidy in, in China um, is going to be very focused on large solar farm uh, facilities. And so that, and that drives different economies of scale. So if you remember, the reason the European um, subsidies are higher is because they're targeted towards residential and small commercial installations. And that's been the lion's share of the market so far. Um, really, the industry hasn't yet, hadn't yet figured out how to do big farms. And, and I think as we do bigger farms, uh, as I said earlier, you don't need as high a tariff to make them work. Um, but we've got to also cross that, that, that barrier and be able to, to do those projects first and prove that it's possible. Seems like you've mentioned photovoltaics, but have you, um, are you involved at all with solar thermal? Do you have any thoughts on different, uh, different options? Sure. Solar thermal? Uh, so we, we have looked at solar thermal. We continue to look at it uh, as, a, as a technology. We believe it's very still more expensive and therefore it still has some way to go before it gets to the uh, kind of level where it can compete with other forms. Um, there are also different risks associated with it. We own a, an equity stake in Brightsource, uh, which we believe is a, is a company that has a, a good capability and is you know, one of the ones likely to succeed to be able to create a scalable um, solution that, uh, that produces you know, reasonable cost structures. Um, the, the, the reality is that, that solar thermal is, is going to be a niche uh, market um, in the very high radiation zones of the world. Um, and um, frankly, it, it, was, it is more like a small gas plant or a small coal plant than it is a, a PV farm. So it's a very different set of dynamics. Uh, we don't have any proprietary technology uh, in the solar thermal space. And so we didn't choose to, to enter it uh, as a kind of startup. Um, I think we'll work with, uh, closely with others who will develop the technology, and we may find ourselves in, in it if the cost structures uh, realign. Do you see uh, solar, what would you prefer, utility solar power or rooftop solar power? Well, right now, today, uh, the margin structures are much better in the rooftop sector. Um, but frankly, we, we're very interested in um, the uh, solar farm segment because it, it's a, a way, an access point into a much lower cost structure. Um, if we can drive down you know, to, through scale, because think of it this way, you know, last year we, we sold a couple of hundred megawatts, this year we'll sell maybe four. Um, 400 megawatts, and I just told you we want a 600 megawatt project, it takes two and a half years to develop that. But now with 600 megawatts of demand that I can go and source, um, my cost structure is very different on the 400 that I was going to sell. So, so the volume benefits of large uh, scale facilities to really underwrite cost structure uh, are very powerful. And we need to, um, we need to incentivize uh, those, those structures because you know, I can tell you for a fact that a gigawatt factory that has you know, a couple of hundred megawatts already contracted is going to be much more cost effective than you know, three couple of hundred megawatt factories, and we need to see that scale continue to grow. So, so the answer to your question is that I, I'm very, uh, very committed to developing the large farm uh, because I think the large farm will give us a different access point. Uh, and I think it will get us quicker to grid, 
grid competitive electricity, which is what we all actually need to make this a real business rather than a, a subsidized help Could you go over the answer to your second question again in a little more detail? Uh, Stick my neck out? <laughs> sure. Um, so, so I think that uh, the manufacturing segment in China has the capability to scale up beyond China's demand. Uh, so I, I think that, that that's in theory possible. Uh, the question I think uh, somewhat posed by the previous question is, you know, are, are the incentive mechanisms going to be right to enable that. Uh, I think it's actually folly for um, uh, other economies that don't have the scale advantages of China to, to try and emulate that. Um, I, I we, we've made a decision, I've made a personal decision to exit manufacturing in higher cost locations. So I shut down my factory in Australia, I shut down three factories in Spain, um, and some facilities here in the US. So you know, our judgment was, um, this is not going to work because our factories are very small and they, they are not sustainable uh, in, their, in terms of their cost structure. So, so I think that uh, you go to the places where you can get the scale, you get the economies of scale, you get the efficiencies, and where the government is able to frankly support um, those, those industries, and they become the manufacturing centers uh, as they have become in other commodities. I would uh, like to hear your comments with respect to the announcement that Bloom Energy made a couple of weeks ago with respect to their fuel cell and uh, the idea that the cost of the fuel cells will go down to $3,000 in the next few years. Uh, that would make it competitive uh, with solar from my point of view. I'd like to hear your comments. Well, a general comment I'd make is um, we are in favor of all forms of energy. Actually, we're, we're not saying we should do solar or we should do fuel cells or anything. Uh, it, it's, the world needs more energy than it can produce today. And um, all forms of energy need to be simulated so that they can be cost competitive. Um, I don't know the details of, of uh, Bloom's announcement. I, I've, I've met with them and I have a lot of respect for them as uh, an innovating uh, company. Uh, and I think they are going to develop something uh, that is cost distinctive. Um, but you know, the, the issue for all these nascent energy forms is scale. Uh, they will get to those cost points when they have the scale. Um, but it's, the whole issue is, will, they, will someone fund that scale up? Or will they actually uh, be able to, uh, to reach that point uh, quicker? I think some of the things that are happening, I, I actually have, I'm opposed to, which is that we're incentivizing uh, niche uh, applications instead of incentivizing a, a utilization at scale. And I think we need to be careful not to, uh, not to, to kill some of these innovations by, by keeping them inside a small company that can't be funded very well. Uh, let's see. I have a question. Yes. First, regarding the R&D activity about those local Chinese manufacturers. Uh, do they invest a lot in their in-house R&D activity, or do they mostly get their technology from transferring technology from domestic 
two fabulous questions. I could talk about them for quite some time, but let me give you the summary. Uh, in terms of R&D capability, I think absolutely the game started with importing foreign equipment. I mean, if you go around any of the Chinese factories today, you'll see German machines, Swiss machines, you know, the equipment set is imported. Um, now, in um, uh, six months later, you come back to the same factory, and there's a Chinese equivalent machine. So I'll give you a, a, a simple example, lamination machines that we use to laminate the, um, uh, the, the, the module once we, we string it together. You know, uh, I went to a factory about a year ago that had um, five German laminators and, and one Chinese uh, laminator. Um, six months ago, they bought 20 um, Chinese laminators, and there was one German machine left. So I asked them, you know, what, what happened? And they said, well, uh, the German machine's pretty reliable, um, and the Chinese machines, you know, weren't so reliable in the beginning. Um, but actually, the German machines started to have problems, and we had to go and get them to come here. The lead times to fix the machine were, took forever, and uh, we, we bought the next generation of Chinese laminator, and that, uh, they've got 10 of them, and they've never broken down. So, you know, I mean, it's extraordinary how rapidly um, Chinese companies have taken technology, uh, reinvented it, uh, and I don't believe they stole it. I believe they reinvented it, and as a result, produced something which is uh, better quality. Uh, so, my experience is that all the, the partners that we've worked with, uh, they start out, you know, they struggle to begin with, with quality, um, but they are so committed to improvement. Uh, and you see this in actually most Asian manufacturers. We saw it in Korea, we saw it in Taiwan, now we're seeing it in China. Uh, nobody wants to sell an inferior product. Uh, and they recognize that they have to be high quality in order to command a premium. In terms of profitability or cost structure of Chinese companies, um, so here's the thing. There's, there are so many companies now uh, manufacturing that you have a whole spectrum. Uh, and I would say, you know, the correction we had last year was very good. Because it killed a whole bunch of people. Uh, I don't want to use that word in a, in a negative sense. <laughs> but, it, but it really did push those inefficient players um, into a difficult situation where they had to either correct uh, or get out. And I think that's very, very important for the industry because we can't afford um, to, to sustain high cost structures. Do you have a sense of what the geographic distribution of uh, solar generators generation is going to be, or what it's looking like right now inside mainland China? Or, like, is, it, is it all in rural areas, or is it going to be in big cities, or Yeah, because the Chinese government is really focused on, on, the, on the large uh, utility scale segment, um, it tends to be where there's a lot of abundant and cheap land and high radiation. Uh, so that's where it's starting. It's in western China primarily. And as I said, the grid lines are there be able to bring it into the east where the demand is. Um, but I think we're seeing also the emergence of some root programs uh, in those populated areas. I mean, you know probably as well as I do, the cost of real estate in you know, the, the sort of urban centers is just, uh, I mean, you know, Shanghai is more expensive than, than Tokyo and London. So, so it, it's, it's it would be impossible, frankly, uh, to, to, to secure real estate to be able to, to build out a significant solar in those urban centers. So it's going to be a rural game, but not necessarily for rural uh, applications. Uh, it's going to be driven down these superhighway grid lines into the um, urban centers. OK, 
Okay, we have time for maybe one more because I'm uh, informed that there are actually some uh, refreshments outside. Fantastic. So, uh, we may be, we'll be able to continue the conversation here. We'll do one last question over here. I, I believe I'm right to say that you sold, uh, sold out to Cabin Telluride a few years ago. I was wondering if you could give some, uh, some uh, perspective on that with hindsight and perhaps reference to both solar companies. Very good. Um, do you like the way that question was phrased? Um, I, I would say, um, so that, uh, we're the first company to build a cadmium telluride uh, manufacturing facility in Fairfield here in California. And um, uh, we had a, a, a bad experience with it, uh, frankly. Uh, the cost structure was, was too high, uh, the reliability of the product was not good, um, and the ultimate uh, outcome of it was you know, measured against our benchmark of the lowest cost of electricity over the life of the panel, uh, this was an inferior product. And, and I, you know, I I'm probably get shot down by my team for saying that, um, but that's the reality of it. Now about uh, six months later, First Solar was formed. And what they did was they took uh, the process of manufacturing CAD cell panels, uh, and they really focused on uh, driving it in a consistent way to manufacture a consistent quality product. And they did a fabulous job. So the question is, it's still a relatively low efficiency solution, has issues with cadmium and other precious metals that are very challenging products um, for the long run. We still haven't seen you know, uh, 20 years of operating data. I can show you 20 years of operating data from silicon PV panels that we've taken off roofs, and I can tell you silicon does not degrade. Fundamentally, it's a fabulous material to work with. Um, you know, glass and other precious metals that have been sprayed on glass, you know, they're very challenging. And we found them to be very challenging in the deposition uh, and in the consistency over time. And so we'll wait and see what happens to the fleet of first solar panels uh, over time. I suspect they'll be much better than the ones we did, um, but who knows exactly how they're going to degrade over time. Uh, so I would say thin film has moved a long way. It's not just first solar. There are a number of other companies that are uh, developing very good technology in CATEL. Uh, and I think that it, it will be a, a, an important component of the solar mix. Uh, I see it much more as a niche product. I don't see it as uh, supplying most of the demand, primarily because it's too low efficiency uh, to compete with the other forms of uh, high efficient uh, production. And I think that you may see us back in a thin film game at some point in the future. All right, well, please join me in uh, thanking uh, For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.